Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, publisher of a book called Wild Game. My mother, her lover, and me. It is the riveting new memoir by Adrian Brodeur. It is also the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. This is an exceptional family memoir. It's a mother-daughter story. In it, Brodeur introduces us to her mother Malabar, a charismatic narcissist who embroils her daughter in a romantic affair at a young age and essentially takes over her life and herself until just in the nick of time. I'm not going to spoil it. You should read the book. It's called Wild Game. It is outstanding. It is by Adrian Brodeur. Wild Game. Out there now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, okay? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm just going to let there be some long, pregnant pauses here at the top just to kind of get us settled in. I think everybody needs to settle down a little bit, don't you? Jared Kobeck is back on the program. He is here for, what, the third time? Celebrating the publication of a new novel called Only Americans Burn in Hell. It is available from We Heard You Like Books, which is Jarrett Kobeck's own publishing imprint. He runs his own indie press. So uh, Only Americans Burn in Hell has already been published to uh, rapturous critical acclaim in the United Kingdom. 
And this is its uh, North American debut that's happening right now. So uh, you're going to hear me in conversation with Jarrett Kobeck in just a second. I first met him a few years ago when he published a novel called I Hate the Internet. It, too, was published on his imprint, though at the time I was not aware of that. I was hoodwinked a little bit. Uh, the book was starting to make, uh, make waves. Uh, I want to say a friend of mine or a couple friends of mine started chattering to me about it. I had Jared Kobeck on this program. I think the interview that he did here for that book wound up helping it along a little bit. And then subsequently it took on a life of its own and it wound up selling all over the world. It wound up getting reviewed by the New York times, which is unheard of for a self-published novel. So it was a very rare kind of Halley's Comet experience for Jarrett Kobeck with I Hate the Internet. And it then led to a major book deal and the publication of another novel called The Future Won't Be Long. And it came out from Viking in 2017. I talked to him again when that book uh, dropped, and it did not hit in the way that I Hate the Internet hit to say the least. So with uh, Only Americans Burn in Hell, Jarrett Kobeck is sort of returning to form a little bit. And, uh, you know, everything that I just outlined, we cover in our conversation. And I think it's a useful conversation. And I think the experience that he has had in the business of publishing is illuminating and interesting and uh, will probably be of interest to a lot of you. It's, it's just a good story, period. And he's a great talker and a great thinker. And uh, fun to, you know, fun to have on the show. But, you know, this has been quite a ride for him. And he is very candid in discussing all of it, which you are going to hear right now. So let's get to that conversation. This is Jarrett Kobeck. And his new novel, One More Time, is called Only Americans Burn in Hell. What ended up happening was that book went from being this thing where there were really modest ambitions to a thing that just got out of my control. Um, in a and, good way. In a, you know, it's interesting. There's good chaos and there's bad chaos. It always feels like chaos. And you're always unprepared for it. And I think we're really prepared by society for bad chaos, right? Because we dwell on the ills. No one prepares you for good chaos, you know, uh, it's a, it's a complicated thing. So let's, I mean, let's talk about good chaos. So sure. for people who are, don't have context, like I hate the internet was this book that you published, right? It, that you sent out into the world with very modest ambitions. And then what happened? The ambitions for that book were to sell a couple of thousand copies at most and have enough of a success that I could get picked up for the next book by a major publisher. Um, that happened in about two months, maybe less than two months, maybe a, a month and a half. And it ended up sort of infamously, I think at this point, at least to myself, being reviewed by the New York Times, which is really unusual because the Times doesn't review self-published books. And this was also part of the ruse where it was like, we're going, I'm going to pretend that this is the least self-published book I can. And then once the Times reviewed it, I was like, fuck it. I, now it's a self-published book. Now everyone can know because it's like, where, where can you go from there? But book ended up being translated into, I don't know, 
10 languages published in 13 countries, and there's more translations coming. Globally, it sold about 100,000 copies. Um, I, up until December of 2018, I was still traveling the globe in support of it. The last thing I did was uh, a book fair in Rome, which was really crazy because the publishers, the publisher I have in Italy, who are very good publishers, it was like some kind of weird star treatment where I, I never really got out into Rome very much because they had some BMW chauffeured car thing <laughs> just driving me around. What the fuck? Yeah, I, and it's stuff like that. Like, it really went from this thing published with incredibly modest ambitions to, like, now people are running full-page articles about you in German newspapers. And, you know, you're, I've, I've been on television so many times at this point where though like what not in the well once in the english-speaking world i i was on um channel four uk news um in early 2018 or early 2017 they had me on to talk about fake news and it went disastrously bad because i could just tell that i had been brought in to be the clown essentially so i dressed like a, a clown i had like this weird hat on i'm like wearing this guns and roses shirt and it was all filmed in burbank at nbc4 and then it like was a live thing going across anyway it's it, like it turned into me getting into an argument with venerable john snow not of <laughs> game of thrones but like he's like a really well-known newscaster anyway like but lots of german television french television uh, a lot of serbian television so like yeah the book did really well in serbia yeah yeah it did it was a bestseller in serbia um and i went to serbia and that was kind of amazing too because because serbia sort of has a pariah state ta uh reputation it's not part of the eu um, and it's like going into a very different kind of Europe than what you get in the, the normal countries. And I don't think a lot of American writers go there. So it was treated like a state visit or something. It was really weird. Like the amount of media was insane. And again, this is all off of a book where, you know, what was the press? What's the press still? It's a bunch of boxes under my bed, you know, and, and boxes in a warehouse in Gardena. I mean, it's not a lot. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina, and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music, and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie, and Wrightsville, and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. When did you, and when again, I think we might have touched on this in, in previous yeah. interviews, but when did you feel like 
it hit some sort of tipping point or what was it that broke it out? Uh, there were two things. One is that, um, Brett Easton Ellis, I had sent him a copy of the book and he randomly posed with it for a photograph for some French cultural magazine. Cause I think that his complete works were coming out under new trade in France and someone sent it to me, um, like who, for whatever reason was reading this magazine. And that was like, well, this is incredibly fucking weird because it's Brett Easton Ellis. Um, and then the second thing was also somewhat infamously, I got heckled by a beatnik at city lights. For oh, me. right, right, right. And like that really helped the book enormously in ways that are just impossible to understand just because it got word of mouth going word of mouth. And it's like you, I mean, you've been to literary events, you go to any literary event and the reality is that 90 seconds in you want to leave, right? Like, you know what that experience is going to be. So I think there was a certain cultural, I think, I think it's like, because that happened, it subverted expectations of what happens at a literary event. And as a result of that, it gave it a kind of, um, viral, thing and so like it just everything went right now what ended up happening is i very shortly after the new york times reviewed the book i sold a novel to vin uh vintage viking uh, which is an imprint of penguin random house and then the book came out um in august of 2017 and it was an epic disaster. It was like, it was the fate that should have befallen I Hate the Internet, right? Like, it had as much impact as you would imagine a book published by some random weirdo with some boxes under his bed would have. Um, but this was a giant corporation. But this is like, <laughs> not just a giant corporation. I mean, it's like... Penguin Random House is the biggest publishing company in the English-speaking world. Uh, Viking is an incredibly storied imprint that used to be its own publisher. Um, and some of it was their fault. Some of it was the fault of the book just not making sense in the moment. Some of it was my fault. It added up to just like a massive commercial failure, like massive particularly relative to the advance they gave me which wasn't huge but was not insubstantial um and that left me in a really weird lurch you know um when you have that kind of failure it's very very hard to keep having a career uh in publishing in particular so i knew by the by the week the not even the week like the day that the book came out i knew it was gonna fail why uh again some of it was the context i mean it was published i think five days after charlottesville and it's a book about white people doing drugs in the 80s that's a hard sell right you know but penguin did not the best job on it like the cover was terrible it's not the title I would have used and they what title would you have used i wanted to use which ultimately turned out not to be a good decision because someone else had a book 
very shortly after with a similar title. But I wanted it to be called Everything is Horrible because there's this woman who has a car in Los Feliz, which is like this old, old Toyota Corolla from like 1980 that, well, maybe not 80, 19, the 1980s that she, um, <laughs> that she clearly it's a piece of shit. And then she just let her friends spray paint all over it. And one of them spray painted everything is horrible on it. <laughs> and to me, that seemed like that's actually not wrong for that book because it's a book about people in their late teens and their early twenties up to their thirties, which is the time where you reflexively feel like everything is horrible. I also right? think it would be a better, uh, a better title because it would, uh, it would function similarly to I hate the internet right? in that it says something that people innately feel very plainly. Right. And I feel like that's part of this. I mean, I don't mean to be reductive, but I, I think I told you this last time. I think part of the success of I hate the internet oh, I, is that it had this blunt title. Oh, I agree. That captured something that all of us sort of feel, but might not necessarily. No, I, I mean, I agree completely. That was the idea and choosing or, or advocating for everything is horrible. Um, but you know, they didn't do the the best job and they didn't really have very much of a marketing plan beyond like, let's get the New York times to review it. Um, and did the New York times review it? No, 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 no. I suspect I got punished for the caper with, I hate the internet. That's my, my theory. It, it, there was a discussion, there were back channels fair, in fair play to Penguin. They really pursued that review. People were being stopped in elevators, you know, weird New York shit that I can't even understand. Um, they tried. They genuinely tried on that. But if the linchpin of doing something like that is let's get one review, I think it's really easy to assume that's going to be happening, but then what happens if it doesn't, you know, um, it means you have no backup. It means you have nothing really. Um, and so it came out and it, I knew instantly that it was, it meant that like whatever this crazy glow from, I hate the internet had evaporated and it was just gone. And, you know, like, like I said, part of that's my fault because I should, if I, if I were a more strategic thinking person, I would have understood what it would mean to follow up something like I hate the internet with a much more conventional, conventionally structured and written novel, which is, I think it signals in a way. And, um, and I don't think this is the case, but I think it can signal it. I think it can signal a kind of personal, uh, what's the right way to say it? I think it can, I think it signals that, all of the qualities that were in that were in I hate the internet, maybe those qualities were ephemeral, right? Maybe those qualities were someone having a weird outsider book with these outsider opinions, but that actually just wants to be an insider. And to, to a degree that's true, but to another degree, it's never been true. And I think a lot of this stuff is about perception, you know? And I, th I think a lot of it was like, basically I took the easiest path. Right? right. Right. Well, but the thing is though, is that you, you know, you're, you're as the writer, you're asked to create the book, write the book. 
Yeah. This level of strategic thinking, that shit exhausts me. I hate it. Like having to think through like, well, what's the market going to think? No, it's and how a, do I compete? And like, it's, it's like, fuck. I, I mean, this is the thing. I agree with you. No writer should actually have to do that. I think to survive now, people have to. Right. And if you not, if you don't learn how to get good at it, you're going to get fucked. So how do you get good at it? You have to like think like a marketing person or I, I mean, in my case, I think it's like relearning lessons that I didn't want to learn and then forgot once I learned them, like everything about, I hate the internet was put together strategically. The cover was designed, even though people think the cover is hideous, it's intentionally fucking hideous. The title, everything was so strategic. Um, and that's part of why it succeeded. I mean, ultimately, I think you could have printed like a white book that just had that title on the front of it in Times New Roman, and it probably still would have sold quite a few copies. So I don't know. I mean, you, you try to get better at it. You try to think about how to do it. But, but I mean, like, are you looking to outside resources? Like, are you actually studying up, thinking about marketing? When I did I Hate the Internet, I actually read a lot of books about marketing, which... Um, I don't know how useful that actually was, but I did. Um, no, I don't know. Some of it's instinct too. Like what books on marketing did you read? God, I don't remember. Like it's Seth like, Godin books or things like that? No, like, like books on marketing by academics. Oh, okay. Like not anything popular, but like things by, or like, you know, economists who are, or who are or social scientists who are studying marketing and thinking about it. And what were some insights? Were there any that you can remember? Oh, um, no. And that's what I mean. Like you forget this stuff right. if you're not hypervigilant about it. And there's an argument that maybe that hypervigilance about something like that, maybe that's mental illness, you know, like an undiagnosed mental illness to be a person who's constantly thinking about this shit. But it's clear that there are people who do. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And then like, I think, and I also feel like some people have an intuitive gift for it. Yeah. Like they just know how to, and like, this isn't necessarily to denigrate. This is actually, I, I think there's something to people having a gift for being able to reach an audience and connect right? and channel, you know, some, some somehow like intuitively channel how, um, people are feeling, I don't know. They, they just have a popular sensibility yeah, yeah, yeah. or something. And yeah. I, I kind of feel like I don't think I'm ever going to have that. Like, and I'm, I don't, I don't know if I'm that disappointed about it, but you just notice it in certain people. They know how to please an audience. I mean, I think it's a blessing and a curse, right? Where you certainly can get sales from that. What that actually does to the individual who has to be like that or who is in this or who is so tapped in to whatever the zeitgeist is that, whatever is natural for them becomes, I don't know, becomes popular product. I don't think that's a happy place to be. No, that's, I, that's my guess. I think I'm like, I, I feel, I, you know, I've thought about this like right. with, with, with regard to this show. Yeah. Like, you know, you obviously want an audience, but what are you willing to do to get one? And right. if, do, do I want to sit around every day thinking about right. analytics? And do I want to think about like, well, do I need to run yeah. ads on, you know, I think it's a long game. Just keep yeah. making, stuff that pleases you. I mean, you. I think, I think that's a strategy 
which actually often pays out dividends. It's just a really hard strat. Like what you've done is incredibly hard. How many episodes are you on? 603 as of this so, recording. So what is that? Like 12 years? No, eight. No, eight, eight years. Sorry. My math is terrible. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's like, that's the thing that there's some moment with everything. If you keep doing it where it just becomes a slog and it's a thankless slog and you're like, God, why am I doing this? And then there's another moment beyond that where when you keep doing a thing and you keep doing it well and you keep just doing the same thing, who can say what the actual impact of that is in terms of, you know, what it will bring to you monetarily. But I think it actually does bring something really, I think, I think it's becomes part of the culture, right? And it becomes a reliable part of the culture. Right. And, you hang around yeah. long enough yeah, yeah. making books or paintings or poems or <clears throat> yeah. if you just consistently make stuff right? and you just, you know, and damn the torpedoes. Yeah. Eventually people are like, Oh yeah. You know, that exists. That's a fact. Brad Listy is a fact. Right. That's how I feel. About I'm a fact. You. You're a fact, you know, and it's an amazing thing. It's like eight years Literary culture has changed so much right? in those eight years. And to have someone who has a consistent interaction with it across that time, that's amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, I mean, let's see, eight years ago, it's like you can, it can get hard to place. Eight years ago, there was still alt-lit. Do you remember alt-lit? Right, yeah. You know? Well, that which was a big part of the show. A lot of those yeah, authors yeah. came on, I mean, but... I'm also thinking about like the, you know, technologically where things were 2011. I mean, I don't know. It all moves at hyperspeed and eight years, like a lot can change, but yeah. Um, you know, I think for authors, like the authors that I have on this program and I've said this before, it's the ones who like don't necessarily do it for money primarily. Um, you know, like what are, what are the rules? They read a lot. They don't do it for money and they write pretty much every day. Right. Like that's the formula, yeah. You know, for happiness, I think, and productivity. But like <laughs> people, you know, it's hard. People want to make a living at it, and I think everybody secretly thinks they're going to be the one, right? Well, and I was the one. You were. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's hard to keep up. So to get back to where where we started, because this is actually a really good j- back jumping on uh, jumping on point. Um, I knew instantly that the book had failed. And I knew that it was really incumbent upon me. The future won't be long. The, had future, failed. the, the f- future won't be long had failed. So you, you know, the, just so people stay oriented, right? The follow-up to I hate the internet, the, right? The, you know, the much awaited, yeah, you know, yeah. eagerly the f- anticipated follow-up just like fell flat. Yeah. I mean, I think it sold 300 copies in about six months, excluding like library sales. It did not sell. Um, and people were right not to buy it. Um, it made no sense in the moment. It just made no sense. Um, I had written this other thing while building up to the release of the future won't be long. And I told my agent at the time, send them this manuscript now. Have you sent, have you changed agents? I don't have an agent. Oh, you don't No. What happened? (laughs) That's a long story. (laughs) Um, I, we can get to that later, but let me, let me try to stay on track. Yeah. Um, 
we so he sent the manuscript to Viking, which had an option on my next book. And then, you know, these options are supposed to be for 30 days. I think it turned into 90 days and then it turned into a rejection. But I knew the rejection was coming. I knew there was no way you could recover from that big of a failure. Um, and I also knew that the book we were sending out was not the appropriate book for the follow-up to a massive failure. Too literary, too all of the things that we think about literature being. Um, and had The Future Won't Be Long succeeded, you could see how that could be a follow-up book. It could not be the follow-up book to a failure. So when I got back... And wait, what book did you send out? Like, What's the third book that you sent? The third book, I, it, weirdly enough, it's ended up recycled into the book that we're talking about now. But it was like this really complicated thing that's I don't want to explain. Just okay, to, but it wasn't this book. It's not this book, Got no. Um, parts of it have been recycled into this book. Um, and it's just like, this isn't going to happen. Right. Like I could tell, I just knew it was not a mystery to anyone. I then, as soon as I got home, cause I had gone to New York to do an event, um, for the future won't be long at the strand. Um, and then they had flown me to San Francisco to do an event and, you know, like you can see it, you could just see the indifference and people like people would it was a big crowd and because like one of the legacies of i hate the internet is i will always be able to draw a room of about like 35 depressed people in san francisco <laughs> um you know and it was like it was a good event it was a really good event no one wanted the book no people would buy i hate the internet but they would not buy the future won't be long isn't that interesting yeah, I thought it was fascinating. And I mean, they didn't even, you know, like, you could just tell none of them cared. Because when it got to the Q&A, it was like, questions about the internet. And it's like, fine, you know. And so I, I adapted. I'm like, okay, this will just have to be an event about I hate the internet. Because that book is not going to have any traction. What do you think it is? I think people want from you, if I'm going to try to diagnose this, yeah. based on only Americans burn in hell and I hate the internet. Right. Is that what they like is they want you to, to, um, com, you know, comment on the present day. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think we live in such an incredibly confusing moment where so many things that we have taken as givens as American citizens have eroded or collapsed completely. Arguably since 2016, I think the process was probably going on for a while before then, but Trump is an accelerant, right? Like things that were happening instantly happened, right? right? Like things that would have taken 10 to 15 years happened in like two months or three months. And I think the reality of it is, is just that like fiction and writing by virtue that or pub or print writing by virtue of just the mechanisms by virtue of the fact that these books have a long lead time and we live in a moment where everything's changing constantly. Um, that shit doesn't keep up, you know, like that, like the future won't be long. The fundamental reason it failed 
is not that it's a bad book. I think it's a pretty good book. It's not the best thing I've ever done, but it, it's pretty good. It has everything you actually want from a novel if you think people still want things from novels that they wanted in the 20th century. Um, but it doesn't say a word about where we are now, right? It has a sort of universal sentiment and those things don't change, but we're also in a moment of total chaos, right? Um, the way, the analogy that I've thought of <laughs> is like, imagine all of the people and there were probably thousands of them who had spent years working on novels and maybe some of them were bad. Maybe some of them were good. Maybe some of them were really good. And we're getting into the end stages. And this is in 1941, right? They were getting into the end stages. It's like, oh, my intricately composed book about rural, you know, like small town life in the Midwest, right? Like this is really going to be the book. This is really something. And then Pearl Harbor happens and it's like instantly all of that work, instantly all of that writing means nothing. And it might not mean nothing in the long term, but in the short term, people, people are too, you know, like this massive fundamental shift in American life has now happened and there is no way that things written before it can possibly address it. You right. Know? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that there is an element of, you know, I call it like the cosmic element where, you, you know, books have to be timed well. Right. And I don't think, I think it's like a losing, it's a losing pursuit to try to game that. Right. Like to try to write to the moment. Yeah. You sort, but you do have to have your antenna up. Some writers can do it better than others. You obviously can do it because right. you're paying attention yeah. and you're able to assimilate a lot of information and you're a satirist and yeah, you know, like, like there's a, there's a way that I've found where you can write around it. You can't write around it entirely. If something really mega happens, you're fucked. There's no, there's no coming back from that. There is a way in which if you're very, very careful and you're talking about specific things or specific events that you can kind of write around that, but you're still at the whims of fate. You know, you're still completely at the whims of fate. So like what actually that, that when I started writing only Americans burn in hell was the week that I came back from that trip for the future won't be long. And what, like where, where are we in time? This is like uh, late August, 2017, okay. September, 2017. So the first year of the Trump administration. Yeah. Yeah. Charlottesville has just happened. Um, and I actually I had a woman ask me a question at one of the events where she was like, which was the best question anyone asked, which was, what's it like to try to promote a book right now? And it's like horrible, you know, it's a terrible moment to be doing this. And I really appreciated the question because it was like, that's the smartest question you know, of 50 that I was asked, you know, that's the one that seemed to me the most about whatever people were sitting through in the moment. So I came home, started working on the idea originally was to do a fantasy novel, um, 
in the voice of I hate the internet. Not exactly the voice, but something close to it. And why a fantasy novel? I had um on that trip I had ended up in some people's apartment and these are very good liberals, close, close friends of mine. And then at some moment and this was like at a minor party. They were like, let's go watch some TV. And I was like, okay. Cause I like watching people watch TV. I think you learn more from that than from TV itself. And then it was like some episode of game of Thrones. And it was just like, you know, like once or twice every season game of Thrones has the real big battle sequence. And it was just like war porn. Right. And they were really, really into it. And this is not to sit on judgment of them on them really. Um, but it was so weird because these are people who, if you were to ask them their opinions about us foreign policy would be like, no, it's terrible. We shouldn't be in these wars, but then are going and watching popular entertainment that to me in that moment seemed like a real reflection of how militaristic we had gotten post nine 11. And I thought that was interesting. And I thought like by using the voice, that sort of really sarcastic, you know, uh, flat affect of, I hate the internet to try to do a fantasy novel. You could kind of get at the heart of whatever this thing was. Or... You, you bring up an interesting point, the popularity of game of Thrones and the way that it functions, uh, and it works on the audience psychologically, yeah. the American audience in yeah. particular, but it's like, you know, we have even pr prior to Trump, I think a lot of people, I mean, what was the approval rating of Congress? It was like 15%. Right. So people had very diminished faith in public institutions right. and in, uh, our elected representatives representing our interests. And then you have this show that basically, uh, presents people in power and the machinations of it yeah. and everything that goes on behind the scenes and how corrupt and, right. you know, venal it is. And it's like, of course this is appealing. Yeah. And it's also war porn. You know, for a society that's been at war for almost 20 years and we never talk about it. Right. And so maybe there's something healthy about that. You know, maybe it's a way by which people can on some symbolic level think about the war that we're in or the wars that we're in. I don't really believe that. I, I tend to think I don't think most people even realize we're in war. Yeah. I mean, I think. And so to me, that's just like how violent American entertainment has gotten in a really militarized way is interesting. Cause you can go watch, you know, I don't know. You can go watch all of those Scorsese films from the seventies. Right. And those are incredibly violent films. They're not militaristic in the way that Amer our entertainment has become now. Um, and like every superhero film, I was just going to say is, is war porn, you know, like, and I mean, I had also, I think that year is also the year that wonder woman had come out. And I found that incredibly disturbing. I found the reaction to wonder woman incredibly disturbing. Not that there shouldn't be representation in media because I, I mean, this is one of those things where I know everyone else is right and I'm wrong. Like, I don't care that much about representation in media because I tend to think the bottom line is the most important thing in media, which is like, 
you can have representation, but if it's just kicking up to the same old white dudes who own everything, is the, is the effect of people patronizing representative media actually more harmful in the long run by virtue of the fact that it enriches the people who keep, um, who have a, who have a structural reason to keep everyone else from getting any money. You know, uh, I fully accept that no one agrees with me on this, <laughs> but I think it's a point worth making. It's a point in only Americans. Um, so anyway, wrote a fantasy novel, did the first draft. It was horrible. It was so bad. And then I was trying to figure out like, how do you, how do you do this? How do you write? How do you make this good? And the thing that I started thinking about is like what the modern world right now is about, is about interruption. We're just like, we're constantly interrupted. No one can do anything without Trump showing up, just constantly showing up. And so then I was, and then, you know, another thing that happened was the me too movement happened. And sadly, the plot line that I had chosen for the book, I realized you could accidentally, if you were squinting, read it as like far right anti me too propaganda. And it is not, but I could see people being like, is this about me too? And I'm like, Oh fuck. You know, like this whole thing is ruined. What was it? What was it? I mean, specifically that you thought could it's have about, been misconstrued. Well, so the book is, I mean, this gets into pretentiousness, but the char all the characters in the book are from a piece of Elizabethan pulp fiction from 1598 called The Most Pleasant History of Tom Lincoln, written by Richard Johnson. It's a terrible book. It's just pulp. Um, but there's a really interesting section where Tom Lincoln goes to fairyland and he gets fairyland is this isle. And it's ruled by women and they've exiled and killed all the men. And that to me seemed really interesting because it's, it's basically the plot of, or the, the setup of Wonder Woman 400 years before Wonder Woman was invented or however. How, how did you stumble upon this piece of like, I, I was, I didn't want to invent characters. I didn't want to invent characters. I wanted to find old, something old that I could repurpose. Um, and somehow stumbled on this thing, which like no one has thought about in any way, except for one guy in 1978. Um, and so I had written it as this fantasy novel where these women from fairyland are just rampaging through Los Angeles, killing everyone and, you know, looking for the law, the queen's lost daughter. And I realized that like the built in. There's no, because everyone reads everything allegorically, there was no way that it couldn't seem like it was a book about me too. And th at first I was like, well, I should maybe, you know, and if <laughs> I should say, if the worst thing that comes out of, if the worst thing that's happens that comes out of this movement of people sharing these incredibly painful, these incredibly awful episodes in their life is that it makes it hard for me to do a book. Like I'm coming out way ahead of the curve on that. Um, but it occurred to me like, God, I could just put all of this in the book. I can just make 
all of this stuff that's happening. Like, why can't this be a book about someone trying to write that fantasy novel, but continually being interrupted by reality? Because that is the world we live in. And that is actually kind of a good mirror of what it's like to be in Trump's America. You can't do anything without Trump just popping up like this hideous specter, right? you know, or shitting all over everything or making everything horrible or people's reactions to Trump's, you know, justifiable reactions, but like being really weirded out and everyone not knowing what to do. Um, and then it occurred to me that the single funniest thing was that the future won't be long had failed, that it had failed completely because, and that that failure could also be brought into the book because what is fucking funnier than that? Than someone who had a huge success, huge unexpected success, who then got involved with the biggest publishing conglomerate in the country and had a massive failure. <laughs> and then it also occurred to me that, that there's a comic way to sort of analyze a really unspoken thing that dominates all of our lives. If you're in media or if you care about media, which is we never talk about who owns publishers. We never talk about who owns film companies. We never talk about who owns television. Right. And one of the things that's really funny about Penguin Random House is that they're owned by Bertelsmann, which is a company with a horrible, horrible history. It was a major part of the Third Reich. They used Jewish slave labor. They uh, printed a ton of Nazi propaganda. And now, admittedly, all the people who were at that company are gone. Right. But they still did it. And that company still exists. And I entered, entered into a business contract essentially with that company. There wasn't a non-disparagement clause in the contract. So it just made me really start thinking about publishing. And, you know, I mean, it's really weird, right? Like, I do not fault any writer who wants to get on one of these presses because I know I was one of them. I know exactly the benefits or at least the assumed benefits of being published by Penguin or Harper's or whoever. Um, but when you do business with these companies, you're doing business with some really shady people. And maybe some of that shadiness is in the past. Some of it isn't. Harper Collins is owned by Rupert Murdoch. Right. And it's like Harper Collins and it is not an insult to any editor working there. I mean, I'm never going to be published by Harper Collins, so <laughs> it's fine. But really, like, I do not begrudge people having jobs. I do not. At the same time, it's really fucking weird that you and that there are some writers who, if you go and look at on Twitter, are the most liberal writers imaginable, you know, or most left writers imaginable. And they're saying all the things that you want someone to be saying that I want someone to be saying, you know, I'm in concert with all of them. I believe 
more more or less i am the metropolitan liberal elite you know like i have a set of beliefs it's pretty much in concert with any of these people um and they're reacting to fox news and they're upset about it and oh my god can you believe fox news said this oh my god look at this racist opinion on fox news but then you look at the writer and they're published by harper collins right <laughs> And it's like you can, in something like that, you can see how sewn up the whole fucking thing is. Rupert Murdoch, who owns Fox News, who owns HarperCollins, you know, he can upset liberals with Fox News. And then he can publish books that are primarily driven by that upset, right? Like, one of the sad truths of the last 20 years is that liberalism in America has not entirely but certainly partially been defined by a reaction to Fox News, right? And it should be, because Fox News is abhorrent, but to then go be published by the person who owns Fox News, that's weird, and we never, ever talk about it. That's right. I would would even go so far as to say that there are probably authors published by uh, HarperCollins and Associated Imprints who don't realize. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, you know... It's one of those questions, how much responsibility do you expect a writer to have? I don't know. I I don't know the answer to that. At the same time, it seems to me like an unbelievable hypocrisy to be like, well, I oppose all of these things, but I will make money for the person who has injected this into our society in a way that no one else has. So it quickly became a book in part about these things and about this interruption. And then, you know, it got revised and it kept going. And at some point it became a, you know, this sounds incredibly arrogant, but it became a really good book in a way that usually I think my work is terrible for about four years. And then I can sort of see where it is. Um, And I think it's, I honestly think it's the first novel that really approaches what it means to be alive in this moment and to experience this constant noise of being alive in American life in the Trump era. Um, How participatory are you? You seem like you hold yourself outside a little bit. What do you mean? Just like you're not on Twitter, you're not in the social media morass. But I don't have to be because I have, I'm friends, all of my friends are liberals. Everyone's freaking out around me constantly. So you You get it that way. I get it, I get it secondhand. Do you read the internet news or anything like that? I mean, I look at the Times, I look at Drudge Report. There's a huge part about Matt Drudge in this book because I think Matt Drudge really shaped american society it's so fucked up you know he was he was a guy who worked in the uh gift shop at cbs studios in studio city and he was living on whitley in hollywood when hollywood was terrible when like where he lived basically was part of the yucca corridor like drug prostitution thing i mean it was bad um he lived in the Fontenoy. He lived on the ninth floor. And one day his dad came to visit him and was like, what the hell are you doing? So they go to the circuit city on sunset (laughs) and he buys drudge a computer. And like in that moment, so much of what would be defined about American life 
just like solidifies with, and the, with the purchase with of a the computer. purchase of a computer at circuit city at, on sunset which is gone now i was gonna know? say i was trying to think of where it is it's not even there anymore I, I i think it's the one that used to be near the vista theater um i don't know i know it's a circuit city on sunset he's such a shadowy figure though you don't really see drudge he no. kind of purposefully hides no i mean i think drudge is a genius i think he's an evil genius but i think he's well not even evil a misguided genius um he he was in the limelight when that all first started happening and then when what all first started happening his website his newsletter so it was originally an email newsletter and then it was eventually turned into a website around 1999 after the clinton impeachment stuff um he was more visible then and he got sued by a Clinton aide because he had written his story, which in fairness, drudge, he retracted almost immediately when he realized it wasn't true that this aide um, had some sort of affair. I can't remember, but drudge got sued for huge amounts of money. And it was a really strange thing because it was a guy who literally probably was making $3,000 a month living in an apartment in the hell of what Hollywood used to be <laughs> being sued for like $50 million by a white house aide who was in the white house. And that's when he started to go into the shadows, but he was really around and he, I think he really wanted to be taken seriously and wasn't, he just wasn't taken seriously by the traditional media, which, you know, has a certain liberal bias that I don't care about. I'm glad it does, but it's there. Um, and then he sort of got taken in by conservatives and taken into a really shadowy network that no one understands that I don't think is that shadowy. I just think it's like rich people with money. Um, who need like a propagandist. Yeah. Who, who, who see the virtue in what he does. Cause I mean, one thing about drudge, which I don't know is true about everyone else. Drudge is genuine, right? Like he believes what he's doing. I think he's wrong, but he believes it. You know, some of these people look to me a little bit like LA people who were floating around couldn't really get the career they wanted and then realized, oh, there's money to be made. That's like Hannity. He's a performance artist. Yeah. He might believe it. He might have said it so many times now that he believes right. some of his own shtick. But yeah, yeah. I remember Keith Olbermann saying that when they were young and starting out in the news business, he like was talking to Hannity and was just like, yeah, you can just lie. You just say whatever you want. Right. They'll pay you, you know. Right. And like he was so very candid about Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he's in on the ruse. Yeah. But, See, Dr Drudge, I think, is genuine. But Drudge, I feel like, and I don't, I'm no expert on right. Drudge. I used to read, like there was a certain period of my internet existence where I would read Drudge Report and Huffington Post in mm -hmm. close <laughs> concert with one another to try to see what the two, like the right. dueling narratives. Right. And it does have a certain, uh, like it's, it's very much PR, you know, he's like spinning certain narratives that he wants to drive. And I don't know, I, I guess, like, I guess part of me like questions, like how much does he really believe this versus like, how much is he like, I know that by now he, he is attuned to what like Fox news and his general audience wants him to push. I, you know, I think I genuinely think he believes what he runs. Where's he from originally? Uh, DC. 
outside right. of DC, okay. I think, but really from Hollywood, you know, yeah, he, I course. mean, so much of this stuff is all LA, which is a thing nev that also never gets talked about. Like so much of what political media, right wing online driven media is mostly the really successful stuff has LA DNA in it. Like Breitbart, right? Like Andrew Breitbart is yeah. a really, he was Drudge's assistant. Was he? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. No, I mean, it, that's interesting. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's an amazing video which is on C-SPAN of Drudge doing, and I write about it in the book, Drudge doing an event at USC, like a s panel with, um, God, I can't remember who they are, but like high popes of a certain kind of journalism that doesn't exist anymore. Right. Michael Kinsey is one of them. Um, and I can't remember who the other guy is. And, you know, like they think Drudge is a complete clown. They're, I mean, they're basically insulting him to his face as he's on a stage. The only question from the audience is Breitbart. He's in the audience. And this is long before the website, long before anything. And he asks Drudge, which I don't think is a bad question, right? He asks him a question that's like, why are you people, by, by who he means, Kinsey and whoever this high pope is, um, why are you willing to allow Hunter S. Thompson a license with the truth, but you are keeping drudge to a level of veracity you don't expect from other reporters? I don't think that's a bad question. Um, they can answer it. Like, their answer is terrible. And it's like, you can see in that moment, Breitbart is the only one in that room who takes Drudge seriously. And this is a guy who really wants to be taken seriously. You can see it going where it's going to go. Right. He's like, hey, do you want a job? <laughs> Something like that. Let's, let's hang out. Yeah. And I mean, shortly after Breitbart was Drudge's assistant. And then when Breitbart founded Breitbart, Drudge would just link to it constantly, which is how the site came into being. How much, and like, I mean, not to spend too much time on Matt yeah. Drudge, but like. Well, I could spend hours yeah. on Drudge. He's made a lot of money. Oh, he's as rich as Croesus. What does he get paid? Like advertising? Advertising, pay? yeah. Jesus Christ. Advertising. And it's like, it's the most like rudimentary. That's part of the genius, right? Everyone else on the planet who had done a website in 1997 would have changed the design every year every two years, every three years. And there was a moment like in 2005 where his site looked really hideous. Now it looks amazing. It's a totally efficacious information delivery system that looks like it was designed by someone in 1997 because it was, it's brilliant. I mean, that is really, that's like, that's the kind of shit that like Steve jobs was obsessed with the complete marriage of content and form with the least amount of interference. And as the internet has gotten clunkier, as it's become more ad driven, you know, Drudge has ads, but they're minor, you know, and he gets literally, it's like tens of millions of maybe that's high, but maybe 10 million hits a day. You know, that's a lot of ads. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's funny to think of him as like a design genius. Yeah, but he is. Dr Drudge is a genius. He just is, unfortunately, the genius is directed in a way that I would prefer it wasn't. Right.
but I can't deny it. You know, Drudge is a genius. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's influential. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, he, all of those guys, that entire right wing media ecosystem that's online, I don't think would exist if he hadn't done it first. Yeah. And I think, you know, like when you talk about the success of right wing media, you know, yeah. cause everyone's like, why isn't there a talk radio of the left to counter right. this? Well, it's like, if you're, if you're not beholden to any rules of decency or morality, <laughs> There is that, you yeah. know, then it's a lot easier yeah. Like if you're willing to cheat. Like, this is the same thing for like, you know, everyone's like the Democrats are bad at politics. I'm like, well, they, they, they don't cheat. Yeah. They, they aren't willing to just completely, uh, shatter like norms and, right. you know, stomp all over the constitution. It's like when you're willing to do all that stuff, you know, like it's not right, but it can be effective. You know, yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah. I mean, so I it's agree. like, okay. Like, I mean, if, if we were both playing by that set of rules, then we would just be, um, I think a, uh, a fast track to complete oblivion, right? Like nobody's holding the line unless somebody Hold. in that, in that scenario, yeah, yeah. you know? And I, uh, I don't know. It's like, like Fox news and Laura Ingram and Rush Limbaugh, these people, Sean Hannity to literally say anything. You put yeah. it in the prompter. He's going to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I think like there's a big fascination. I guess they had that, that, uh, show about Roger Ailes on Showtime. Did mm -hmm. you, I don't know if you saw I, it. I didn't see it. I read I the book. Yeah. Uh, it's called the loudest voice in the room. I think it's by mm -hmm. Gabriel Sherman, but it's basically all about the history of Fox and Roger Ailes right. and how it came to be. But, um, I like one of the biggest questions I have about the aftermath of Trump and like, if we ever emerge from this moment, right. like intact and with an opportunity to potentially right some wrongs mm -hmm. is what do we do about our media culture? Because I'm as close to a free speech absolutist right. as I think you can be. I believe right. in freedom of expression but when it comes to our news media and the responsibility that that should entail right. to inform the public, like you call yourself Fox News, you have billions of dollars right. you know, cycling through this corporation and fueling it and giving it all the trappings of legitimacy. Right. But you're devoted to driving a political narrative no matter the cost, no matter how at odds with right. the, the facts it is. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, it's like an unscrupulous ruse. Right. And if you try to regulate it, then you're going to have people saying that you're stomping on free speech. Yep. So what do we do? I mean, I, I think the solution to it actually is not worrying so much about the speech itself or the content itself, but worrying about what it means to live in a country where 99% of the dialogue is the product of generously 25 companies, right? I, my theory about why Fox news is so successful is that Fox news is a really old school model, right? You, it basically all comes down to Rupert Murdoch, what Murdoch wants that happens. And because of that, Murdoch is actually, there's a kind of generosity is the wrong word, but there's a generosity for where the content can go, right? So Murdoch is a guy who could hire Roger Ailes and Roger Ailes is a guy who I think innately understood what television was like for the people who grew up with television in the sense that people who could remember a time before television and could remember and had sat in front of television 
and watched it change and changed with it. And that's why Fox News is so good with old people, right? Because it's a kind of television that I don't think I can see, but that they can see. But Murdoch was, you know, was able to hire him. And obviously, Ailes has this storied history of like working for Nixon and all of this shit. But ultimately, that network was a personal vision of Ailes, right? Corporate media is not good on personal visions. And I think it's really hurt, uh, hurt us as a country because there's no exactly like what you said. People have been saying, where's the right, where's the left wing talk radio? Um, where's the left wing Fox news? Cause MSNBC ain't cutting it. Right. And I, th I think it's something about me media consolidation where like, those companies don't operate the companies that could now buy conceivably comcast right which we know there are companies that can do that like at&t does not have a rupert murdoch at the head of the company who can allow things to be funky at&t is in their acquisition of all of you know like if you read any of the articles about what's happening to hbo hbo which was this really singular sort of vision they're about to make game shows because AT&T bought them uh, and because they're like $2 billion of profitability each year wasn't enough. They need to get it up to like six. Right. Um, in that, I don't think there's any hope for a counterbalance to any of this stuff. Um, the, the media, the consolidated media cannot have viewpoints in it. Murdoch is a weird anomaly and that's why he was able to do it i think everyone should be broken up like, i was just gonna say yeah. that sounds like the solution yeah i think that's the solution like, i think, don't regulate the speech or like no. put, put rules on how a news program because like i've had people on this program and i've read online and elsewhere you know they're saying we need to reinstitute the fairness doctrine right to make sure that there's some balance in terms of how viewpoints are presented right. on tv so that the viewer at home yeah at yeah. least here's a counterpoint right um, which I don't think is a terrible idea. It's not a terrible but idea. But it's not going to fix it. It's not going to fix it. I think I think the reality is it is so much harder now than it was even 10 years ago or 20 years ago, certainly 30 or 40 years ago, for distinct ideas and voices to get into the media if, it's, if the media you're talking about is the media that dominates 99% of the discourse, right? Like corporations are terrified of everything. The whole concern is don't lose advertisers. Don't do things that are going to, that's going to, you know, upset the Apple car. And you can kind of carve out a niche, which MSNBC definitely has done. But even there, there's limits, you know, you can see the limits if you watch, two hours of that thing. The weird thing about Fox news is like Murdoch is old school. He's from God. I mean, he's practically 90, right? You know, he's like an old school Australian newspaper publisher who has a very different idea about what can happen under his watch. And it almost sounds like a compliment and maybe in a way it is 
it's just too bad that what happens under his watch is abhorrent and destructive and destructive. Has done exactly. like, I mean, it's almost yeah. like, like, is he, does he know how much harm he's done to the discourse in this country? I mean, and to the, and to I will, but I mean, the thing is how much does he care? You know, he's not worried about the discourse in the U S like I have this theory <laughs> that the entire country is held together by dinner party invitations where like we've become our structure has become so oligarchical that the way by which you the way by which the people who are in actual power are restrained is not through the laws it's through invitations to certain dinner parties and like <clears throat> you know like a really good example of this i think is the supreme court right the reason Roberts is not as crazy conservative or has like sort of drifted left and the reason why Kavanaugh who, you know, my assumption was after those hearings, that guy was going to come out and basically be the most right wing judge ever. But it's actually been given the spectrum, not nearly as bad as people thought he was going to be. I think it's because those guys want to be invited to dinner parties in Georgetown, right? <laughs> like, I genuinely think that's what it is. Like, they can see Clarence Thomas, and they can see where he gets invited. Or they can see Gorsuch, and they can see where he gets invited. And they know those aren't the best parties, right? I think that's how it works. Murdoch is in London. So it doesn't matter. No one in England cares. Their society is falling apart. Right. You know, and they got their own problems. They got their own problems. Murdoch lives in Mayfair. It does not. It does not matter. It's just him. money. To it's him. just money. And and in Fox News is a huge money maker. So great, yeah, it's working. Exactly. Whatever we're doing, yeah. you know, yeah, and yeah. damn, and like that's the thing. It's like these people don't care about the consequences outside no. of their bottom line. No, no. And it's like, you know, he's fine in London. You know, he he gets. There's an amazing um, John Le Carre wrote an autobiography, and there's this amazing vignette in it where. One of Murdoch's papers said some wrote published some article about how I think people in Poland and this was I assume communist Poland uh, wanted to do an adapt uh, a theatrical adaptation of one of Le Carre's books, and the article in say the Times or the Sun or whatever was. Um, about how Le Carre had some extortionate demand from these these poor communists who just wanted to, you know, struggle towards freedom through theater. And Le Carre wanted 10,000 pounds, and these people don't have two cents to rub together. The actual story apparently was like he asked for 20 bucks or whatever the equivalent was. And he had met Murdoch at some dinner party, and Murdoch had given him his card. So he calls Murdoch and he sets up a lunch and Murdoch is really deferential to him and gets a retraction published in the paper. And it's like, that tells you everything, right? Like that's a guy who's tuned into UK society because you can't fuck with John le Carre, you know, like this unbelievably successful writer who's also very, very talented and who is the establishment, right? Like he came out of the secret services, right, right? You know, like that's what drives these things. We've, we as a society have gone so crazy that like the social shame of, I don't know, 
10,000 people controls a lot of the way that the country goes. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. I think that maybe there's a part of me that's like, well, maybe that's healthy. You In know, a way, it is. Because I just don't you, think it should we, be that few. We need, yeah, we, but we yeah. do need, I feel like, people of varying political viewpoints to intermingle socially. Right. You know, I think the tribalism of politics can be problematic not only in in the real but also online right where you're in these echo chambers and you're on a social media feed right. where you're only hearing right. from people who agree with you yeah, yeah yeah you know and it's just like everyone's just split off from one another but if we actually had to interact i'm i'm working on it i'm trying to get booked on um some of the daily wire shows it's it's been interesting thus far Wait, like to go on there and be like a counterpoint or? yeah yeah i'm trying to go on ben shapiro Right. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I we're chasing it. Really? Yeah. And would would you be worried? Because the thing about it is that like it sounds. Cause I've had that fantasy too. Right. Like go, like to go on Hannity and just get to like be the counterpoint. <laughs> but once you're in that lion's den, like they know how to. Oh no! I mean, I mean, to me, that's what's interesting about it. Right. It's a high risk situation where, realistically speaking, with books, there's never any risk. It's really, really unusual for there to be any risk involved in anything involving the promotion of a book. There's huge risk on this podcast, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you seem an affable fellow. So, um, no, I, I want to go on Shapiro. I mean, been emailing with them, sort of getting ignored, sort of not. Well, you're, the title of your book should be enough to provoke them. Yeah, I mean, I thought I thought they would just like want me to come on and beat up on me. Like, that would be appealing enough but, but no see, I, I mean it's a thing where like if it's done wrong could basically i basically could never write again you know and to me i don't know that's the death wish right like but i don't know i think it would be interesting i think it would be really really interesting be something to write about yeah to go into this thing well i think too though that like sometimes you'll have somebody on uh they'll have somebody on like, like usually they have somebody on who disagrees and right. who is like there for counterpoint, but they're really just a punching bag. Right. And that's the purpose of it. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes that punching bag, like he or she will have his or her wits about them. Yeah. And will be able to subvert. And they usually just shut it down. Like I when mean, people yeah, go on Tucker Carlson and like, they're actually able to sort of like hit back or they put him in a position what? that he doesn't like, he just shuts it down. Well, this is the thing, right? What is interesting to me about those daily wire shows is it's a very different format than cable television by virtue of it being new media you're in there for a while right. like if you go on fox news and uh you even if you're the most cogent completely on it person that seven minute segment format you cannot Right. Do anything. Soundbite. Yeah. But I don't know. Something like the Daily Wire, I, I, the Ben Shapiro show. Like, I, I think that could genuinely be interesting. And I mean, you know, not interested in going in and pissing all over the place. Right. I think it could be really fascinating. So I'm chasing it. I, I don't know if they're going to do it, but. Well, we'll see. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. 
Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. And like, yeah. I want to get to, I want to get back to your book. Oh, right. Yeah. And the publication uh, experience like this time around, like you went back to kind of like your old ways with this. You had the Penguin Random House experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Having failed out of mainstream publishing in the U.S., um, no, it was a different It was a different experience because I Hate the Internet did pretty well in the U.K. Um, the Future Won't Be Long did pretty okay there. Not great, but oh, respectable, right? So I have a very good relationship with Serpent's Tale, which is an imprint of profile books for my UK publishers. And after a lot of complications with trying to send this book out through my agent to US publishers, um, you know, and it's like, I've said it before, but it, it bears repeating the best sales strategy may not be sending a manuscript to Penguin Random House in which you denounce Penguin Random House <laughs> for being Nazi collaborators, <laughs> but it seemed worth a try. But, um, yeah, so Serpent's Tale, after I'd, you know, parted ways with my agent and just sort of gone totally solo with no idea what to do. Serpent's Tale asked me if I was working on anything, and I sent them a version of this book that was about three-fourths of the way done. It didn't have an ending, and some things weren't in it, but you could. See it was much in a much better place than like when I had finished that first draft and was just like, what the fuck is this? This is terrible. This is not working. Um, and they offered to publish it in the UK, and then we worked through for about a year, just like me changing things, me adding things, whatever. And um, it came out in the spring of this year in the UK. And as usual, the one thing that I didn't think of is the thing that happened. Like I went through all these different scenarios and what ended up happening is like, it just got unbelievably good reviews in major publications, except for the guardian who I think were disquieted by it. Um, and when that was weird, cause the guardians always been really supportive and supposedly commissioned a review, but it just never showed up. Um, but like Murdoch's times ran an amazingly good review of it. Um, all of these other papers. So like, it was a really strange thing because I wasn't going to publish it here because I was like, I don't see how you do it. You know, um, didn't really want to publish it with another press because the run times at other presses would mean that like it would be coming out in the middle of 2020. And I think there's going to be a moment very soon where 2020 is going to block everything out. It's originally, it was just going to be the election. Now it's going to be impeachment and yeah. the election. Yeah. It's like try selling a book in that. Right. Um, unless it's very perfectly timed. Yeah. Unless it's like, fuck you, Trump, <laughs> you know, which, which is the book I've spent my, the last four years avoiding writing. Um, 
that it, there just wasn't a way to do it. Um, and then those reviews started coming in and I was like, uh, I can kind of see it. And then I decided, all right, fine. I will publish it. It will be on my press, which since I hate the internet has come out, I've done like eight or nine of other people's books. And some of them have been more successful than others, but it's like a real press. It's a functioning business. And I was like, eh, I didn't want to go back to it, but I also saw there was like a very small window in which it was possible. And then otherwise the book, I don't know. It would be like, well, now you're thinking about 2021 or 2022. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, I don't want to do that. I don't have an agent. I, why don't you have an agent? You decided to part. Yeah. It was not his fault. It was not my fault. I just don't think we were on the same page, um, about where to go in the future. And I mean, part of that really is that I don't think publishing knows what it's doing at all anymore. I think the whole thing has kind of fallen apart. Um, and so like the thing is when giant systems start to crumble, no one, the people who can be the least responsive to that crumbling are people who are part of that system. And like, you know, this, whatever success this book has, and maybe it won't have a lot and that's fine because it's, it's a gamble. There's no way that this could have been published in anything like a traditional way and been successful in the U S I just don't think that's possible. Um, a, I don't know if anyone would take it B cause you know, it is nothing if it, it is nothing, if not uh, a, a collection of incredibly scandalous opinions. Um, and B, even if someone did, I don't know if those institutions have the flexibility to do it in a way that is at all related to how strange the world has gotten. But, and, and I don't mean the world, I mean the world of publishing. Like the thought that I've been having is in 2016, when I hate the internet came out, the whole idea was to make the book look as little like a self-published book as possible because that was the clear path to success. I think in this, in 2019, and that's what three years and eight months later or whatever it is in 2019, it's like, it has to look the most like someone on Amazon Kindle as possible. Like it should look as self-published as possible because whatever has happened. And like I said, Trump is an accelerant. I think it was happening anyway. Something about the Trump era just brought this to an end point where it's like, I'm not sure publishing works. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the model works. Even if you just think about the New York times review that arguably ruined my life. <laughs> um, when that review came out and I suspect I may be the last person who has really had that experience of like a times book review really meaning something. Um, when that review came out, it was on the homepage. It was, you know, you could see it if you went down, if you scrolled down, like for less than half a second, it was really, really visible. 
If you look at the Times website now, they don't even have book reviews on the front. They have stripped it down so much that like all the traditional outlets that used to drive engagement with books, those kind of aren't working anymore. Um, and like I said, systems are really bad at responding to their own systemic change, you know, and especially if that change is imposed from without. So I don't know. It, so it seemed like the right thing to do. I will see if it was, I mean, it could be a catastrophic failure, which would, I don't know, maybe that would be the nail in the coffin. Uh, I don't know, though. I mean, like, who's going to care? I mean, you just keep making your stuff. No, I know. But I mean, in terms of whether or not it's the right place for all of my resources to be marshaled, I don't know. You know, I'll see. I certainly didn't think I would be here, like, not here, here, but in this moment, promoting a book this way. And that, I think, is reflective of trying to adapt to chaos what about know. serbia is serbia how's it doing in serbia it hasn't i don't know they haven't there's not a uh there hasn't been an offer of translation yet i don't know what that is but is it all just driven by numbers are these people just looking at sales numbers making decisions no i mean some people are stuff like that like serbia is a small market right yeah um that the, my publisher in Serbia is this guy, Ivan, who runs a company called Buka. And he's like, he genuinely, if you could distill an image of what I would want in a publisher, it's that guy. He's such an operator. He, he understands. He's got a whole ecosystem. He's got like a bookstore, that cafe that sells the books. He, he's great. He's genuinely amazing um but no i don't know we'll see we'll see how it does i mean one thing that was weird about it coming out in the uk is there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance because when it was coming out in the uk and this is again like what you're saying it's like that's when england was supposed to leave the european union so i don't know how much attention anything was getting and then on top of that it's like to what degree are other European countries paying attention to what's happening in England? We know that they always will pay attention to the U.S. That's a legacy of World War II, right? Are but are these company are are these countries paying attention to? That's a nice Freudian slip, by the way. Yeah. Companies, countries. Well, it's both, <laughs> right? right? Um, but are they paying attention to UK publication? Hard to say. I don't. I don't really know. I don't understand those complex cross-cultural things yeah you and me both so you know we'll see i i suspect if the book has any makes any noise in the u.s then probably a lot of foreign translation stuff will come in right yeah that's the market mover yeah like, that's the one that's yeah. gonna have to get it yeah going. yeah no like the uk is you know the uk is great the uk is a place where i have sold relative to the population the best um, and also organically. Um, and it's amazing. I, I just don't know how much anyone is who isn't in the UK is paying attention to the UK, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you see things ending? Like, I'm, you know, after spending a lot of time 
thinking about the current moment and the culture that we're living in and you know, you're a guy who's got his antenna up. Like, we're in... I think the impeachment thing is a disaster. Do you? Yeah. And so just so people know, like, we are talking on October 4th. Right. 2019. Yeah. And the reason I have to mark it is because things are moving yeah, so fast. Exactly. That, that, like, by the time this episode goes live, we could live in an entirely different world. Yeah. So my question is, like, what what are we headed for? What do you think? Nothing great. That's That's my answer. I think... Look, if the fundamental question is whether or not Trump is fit for office, I agree he is not. And I agree he should not be in that office. At the same time, I think the Constitution is a surprisingly crude tool in terms of how you remove a president from office. It's clear it's something they didn't want to think about. They thought about it and they did whatever they wanted to do in terms of compromise but it's not a great like just by virtue of the fact that it's never happened in however many years that tells you that that's not the most adept tool and maybe that was by design in any event i have been operating on the assumption that trump probably would get reelected in 2020 I, you know, as things have been moving forward leading up to this moment of sort of impeachment drama, I was starting to feel like maybe he's not, you know, like, I don't think he's going to be the candidate. Maybe. maybe. I don't know if he's going to, I don't know if he's going to get convicted in the Senate. Yeah. But I don't see how, I think he's going to be so badly damaged that to run him. Well, this is, this is the thing, right? Like, as it's been going on, I've been thinking to myself, maybe Nancy Pelosi is making a bet that is a, that is a smart bet, right? Which is like, my guess is if you talked to senators, particularly in the GOP, most of them must fucking hate his gods, right? And just find it to be this constant annoyance, right? Where like every time they're getting something going, there's a guy who just sort of like every time they build a sandcastle, he's the kid that steps on it. Right. right. And there's no warning. There's no anything. It's just shocking. It's like, ah, uh, okay. I believe that Nancy Pelosi is enough of an insider, you know, and that these people do talk to each other, even though they, there's this pretense that they don't, that she is aware of that sentiment. And maybe she's making a bet on that, right? That, if you give people the opportunity to do this, maybe they'll actually do it because they can see something better on the other side. And the thing that weirds me out is like, what is that something better? It's like Pence as president. Yeah. And the thing about that is I, if it were me, as far as I know, and I could be wrong, there's only been one other moment in American history where the American people have been given the opportunity of having three presidents in a calendar year, which would have been after Kennedy was assassinated. They didn't go that way. And I think the danger with getting Pence there is like Pence is the anti-Trump. This is the thing that he's been selling from the beginning of the presidency, 
right? Where he's like, I'm the guy who's aloof. I'm the courteous, gentle Christian man who won't eat with women. I am not Trump. I really worry <laughs> that if you get him into the presidency, he might actually be able to get elected as president in the, in the, the chaos leading up, you know, like his appeal fundamentally, I think the appeal of someone like Elizabeth Warren, who, by the way, probably should just be president forever, right? Like if we <laughs> lived in a fair world, right? Elizabeth Warren would just, I would be fine with Elizabeth Warren being president forever and like slowly being corrupted by power. <laughs> it would be fine. Right. Um, but her appeal, which I have to say, I didn't see coming and I didn't understand is like, she's an adult in a way that maybe the other democratic candidates don't seem like where it's like, I'm competent. I'm going to be boring on policy. I'm not going to react to Trump. I'm just going to go, I'm going to do the one thing that you haven't seen in these three years. I'm going to do my fucking job. Right. I didn't see that coming. I thought Kamala Harris had a much better argument, although she never actually made it, which is part of the thing. I thought that her argument, the argument if I were Kamala Harris would be, you have lived in chaos. I am a cop. I know about order. I can bring order to this chaos. But she, for a variety of reasons, has never actually made that argument. She's done the worst thing you could, which is sort of make it and then track it back and then not like you i don't think that that level of retail politics you can be anything except what you are and when you try not to be what you are that's when you, everything goes to hell um but i mean i can see pence making the same argument as warren you know like if he's the guy who ends up as president if he runs as the republican candidate in 2020 his argument is very similar to hers. I'm a quiet, affable, diminutive person. I'm concerned about policy. I'm not Trump. I am. It's pretty hard to disentangle him from Trump at this point, though. I don't think he needs to do it for people like us. Yeah, that would be my that would be my best. Argument. He's up to his neck in this in this uh, quid pro quo thing, too. He is. But he but, you know, like the way that things these things get driven is always by perception. Right. And like Trump would not be, this is my sense. Like Trump would not be in the problem if he had done the exact same thing that he had done in that phone call. Trump would not be in the situation he is in if there wasn't this perception preceding him, which he, you know, frankly cultivates and loves. But like if everyone didn't assume on some level that Trump was the most corrupt man they'd ever seen. This would not, we would not be where we are. And I, and I think Pence is like, I don't see him having that stain of corruption. He is a guy who, even if he is corrupt, I don't know. He's, he's corrupt. I, I mean, he is, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, I don't know enough about him, but at the same time, that's a guy who is really, pretty much made a wall in perception between him and Trump. And like, I don't know. I don't think people are going to be really, I mean, there's a really sizable 
portion of the country that is going to be incredibly fucking pissed off if Trump is removed from office. Even if he had shot someone, there's a sizable portion of the country. It gives me a really bad feeling. Now, that being said, if it's November whatever, 2020, and we end up with an Elizabeth Warren presidency or any democratic presidency any kind of change from whatever this is i'm happy me too you know i'm happy yeah but i have a i don't know i have a very weird feeling about all of this it feels like it's teetering it's gonna go it's like if we it either goes good or it goes terribly bad yeah and i i mean i truth be told i am a person who always assumes it'll go terribly bad (laughs) so well yeah i don't know i don't know what's gonna happen that's i always ask people but it does feel like we're getting towards some kind of end game or inflection point or decisive moment um, because it's pretty cut and dry. Like yeah. you can't solicit foreign governments to attack your, investigate your opponent in a political election. You can't do that. I, I can't disagree. I mean, but I don't know. Do those standards apply anymore? To, they I should. Mean, they should. Yeah. But it's, I mean, this is a thing. This is what the book is about fundamentally at its level at, at the most basic level is this idea that the election of Trump has thrown us into a totally uncharted territory. No doubt. And that things that we used to assume, maybe we shouldn't be assuming. I mean, that doesn't mean you don't push for those things and that you don't advocate for those things, but reality is kind of a consensus, right? At least at that level. And it's like, maybe people, maybe there's really enough people in the GOP who don't care about good governance that this doesn't matter, you know? And that's weird. I mean, that's, that's, you know, and I think ultimately that actually is what the book is an attempt to sort of get at, which is like, I don't know if it has any particularly interesting answers, but it is an attempt to sort of plumb the experience of being in that of this new kind of morally nebulous world where you know a reality tv candidate is the president now that being said it's not a trump book because i really did not want to contribute another trump tome right like because i think the right way sad and like it's too late now but probably the right way to have dealt with trump all along just be ignore him right well good know. luck yeah exactly. to, to talk about media conglomerates yeah exactly you know, basically like, using the guy to line their pockets yeah, at the yeah, expense yeah. of the country ignore trump he could have been effectively handled i don't that being said it was a new kind of challenge so but anyway i don't know it's like it's about trying to find a way through the maze of what it means to be american in a particularly complicated and convoluted time to say the least yeah to say the least well uh congratulations thank you it's always good to talk to you yeah no it's it's this is i mostly hate book promotion coming into your weird converted garage is (laughs) is actually very pleasant well it's a it's a it's a it's always an achievement to write and publish any book i i believe that like it's hard it's hard labor um and you I think have like, I mean, I I don't want to reduce it to a formula, but I think whatever track you're on, like pay attention. I like everybody should do this, but I feel like it's specifically 
seems to apply to you is to like follow your own instincts. Your instincts are good. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, one of the things that is really true is, is, and this is, I think one of the reasons why the future won't be long went so haywire is that it wasn't following my sense of it, of like where it should go. And I lost control of the process. And I mean, that sounds slightly egomaniacal, but I did, you know, and this one I've had total control. So I guess we'll see. It's all on you. Yeah. No, I'm the one to blame. <laughs> I, I've always been the one to blame. But with this one especially, I think I'll take the blame. All right. Well, best of luck. Thanks a lot. Okay. That is Jared Kobach. There he is, folks. His new novel is called uh, Only Americans Burn in Hell. It's available from We Heard You Like Books. He doesn't really have an internet presence. He hates the internet. So you can maybe track him down on Twitter. He has a, a, an account that I don't think he does much with. It's at Jarrett Kobach. You can also visit the uh, We Heard You Like Books website, weheardyoulikebooks.com. Again, the novel is called Only Americans Burn in Hell. Go get your copy. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music at the top of the program. If you would like to uh, write to me, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. You can tell me a story. You can tell me how you feel. You can do both. You can write me a poem. If you would like to support this program... Uh, everything's free. All episodes of this show are free. More than 600 episodes. It's all free. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, listeners pitch in. If you want to do that, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. There's another people app too. This program has its own official app. That too is free. It's the other people with Brad Listy app. Go get it wherever you uh, get apps. So quite a ride for uh, Jared Kobach these past few years. I think we'll be hearing more from him. That's just my uh, prediction. So up next uh, on the podcast, next episode is a conversation I had with Steph Cha. She's got a new novel out that has been uh, getting a lot of buzz. I think it got like a royal flush of starred reviews coming out of the gates. It's called Your House Will Pay, and I had a great talk with her, so stay tuned for Steph Cha. All right, I got to go inside and deal with my children. Hey, 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 hey.